Mark chapter 9, we're going to be in verse 42. We're reading to verse 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word again. We ask for you to give us wisdom to understand and to respond to your inspired scripture today. Amen. I've entitled the sermon today, The Continued Education of the Twelve. We've been looking at this continued education for several weeks. And specifically, I've titled this, What Should You Fear Most? So let me ask you a question. This is for kids, young and old. What's your biggest fear? You can actually say it out loud. What's your biggest fear? Rejection. They can be common. Some of you are afraid of spiders and heights <laughs> and swimming and drowning. Fears. A roach has all my water. Roaches. Sorry. Yes. Fears of roaches. <laughs> Other fears. Darkness. Darkness. Yeah, that's you know, every kid goes through that yeah, that uh, phase, right? You can't cross the house without turning on the light. Don't want to go to sleep without a light. The fear of darkness. Anything else? Fears. Lonely. Fear of being alone. You know, a few years ago, we discovered it kind of it's uh, it's not a Halloween song, but we always listen to it in the fall. And it's a kid's song. It's called, What is the Scariest? Or the Scariest Song. And it's a kind of catchy little tune. And the, the song starts off with talking about the normal things. Scared of spiders. Scared of things that crawl. But it gets to its chorus, and it says this. I'll tell you the scariest thing around. Sin. It's the scariest. Sin hurts everyone. Sin, how it hides in us. It's all the wrong that we've done. It separates us from our God behind these prison walls. Oh, sin is the scariest of all. 
If I were to try to give you or help you focus in on a theme, the word uh, sin is a theme that Jesus is constantly referring to in this passage. You're not going to see the words fear, but one of the things I wanted to get your mind thinking about is what are the things that you truly should fear most? And I don't mean fear like of spiders or roaches, right? I kind of use that as, as an entryway into to get us thinking, like, what should really scare us? And we all have those fears, right? Some of you immediately, as soon as you see that insect, right, that the, the, you jump back, the hands go up, a little screen comes out. We have an, like a, a, a physical overt reaction, but Jesus gets at something a little bit deeper, and he's going to talk to his disciples about sin today, and he gets pretty graphic. The, the imagery, the metaphors, the illustrations that Jesus used, they're not for kids. This is pretty graphic stuff. If, you know, we, today we have warnings on, on CDs or movies that tell you what is age-appropriate. This is some stuff that it should shock us, the language that Jesus uses. And it should get us asking questions. So this morning I want to talk about, I don't think fear is the right word, but Jesus is going to certainly want us to be watchful in our lives about sin. And we should have, in a sense, a healthy, God-inspired fear of sin. And it's because what sin can do to us. The outline for this morning, we're going to take a look at three things that Jesus is going to warn us about, or three things he wants us, he wants us to be watchful about. In verse 1, or excuse me, the first thing, verse 42, Jesus wants us to be watchful of causing others to sin. The second thing that Jesus is going to want us to be watchful about is to be watchful about our own sin. This is verses 43 to 48. And then lastly, in verses 49 to 50, Jesus wants us to be watchful about being unsalty. So these are three big warnings that we're going to examine today. And as I told you, Jesus uses some pretty graphic language. And we want to get to what is the meaning of these warnings? What is the meaning of these illustrations? We're going to take a look at what is the warning? What is the illustration? And what can we learn? This is our little pattern. We're going to look at those three things we should be watchful for. What is the warning? What is the illustration? And what can we learn? Now, I want you to already know the big idea. What is the big truth you need to walk away with today? I want to give you that up front. And Jesus is going to make clear that you need to have a God-inspired fear of sin because of its ability to cause you to choose eternal damnation instead of eternal reward in heaven. Sin blinds us and actually causes us to choose eternal damnation rather than eternal rewards. That is why sin is so dangerous. There is no greater cost than missing out on eternal life. And the one thing that will prevent you from walking into, entering into eternal life that Jesus so freely offers and gives is your sin. It's you, your own choices. So, let's study this in more in-depth. Let's take a look at this first thing that Jesus wants us to be watchful of. This is verse 42. Let me read it again. It says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck 
and you were thrown into the sea. Now, you need to know some context. So last week, literally, we, we uh, were learning the story of the disciples arguing with each other about who was the greatest. They get to where they were staying that night. They're sharing a meal together. Jesus takes a child, puts him on his, the child on his lap, and says, uh, listen, and unless you, you relate and see this child like God does, he said, the, the, the greatest of you is really the one who is the least of you. And he's going to invite his disciples to stop arguing about who's the greatest and to look at this child and to value that child. Jesus is now turning to talk about sin, but it's the very same context. The disciples are still in the same place. Yes, we preached about it last week, but the disciples haven't moved, and neither has Jesus' story. We're picking right back up into where we left off last week, and this child is still with Jesus. This child that he kind of grabbed and brought to the forefront. And you notice he picks up. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him for a millstone to be hung around his neck. So just know that we're continuing the story. The focus now changes from who is the greatest to Jesus is going to talk about sin. The first object lesson was about learning to serve. And now Jesus, with the same child, turns to a completely different theme. And he's going to say, I want you to learn something about sin. And so he says, whoever makes one of these child stumble in a sense or not believe in me, then it's better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck. Now, what is the warning? Let's go into our, our little pattern. The warning is do not cause others to sin. Specifically, Jesus is talking about these little ones. And if we were to understand Jesus' illustration, I think it's very specific in talking about those who are immature or weak in the faith. Uh, that could be a younger believer, not necessarily younger than you in age, but it could be somebody who's looking to you to show them what the faith looks like, and you specifically lead them or point them in a direction that is different than Jesus. I think obviously it also uh, talks about the, the reality that children do look to us. We just talked earlier about the significance of parents and the church in helping kids uh, first learn about the faith, but then own their faith. Uh, children are impressionable. And so Jesus is going to say, you need to be careful not to cause others to sin. That's the warning. Now, here's the illustration, and it's pretty graphic. The illustration is someone being drowned by placing a millstone around their neck. That's graphic. That's death. That's drowning. It's about as dark as you can get. And Jesus is specifically trying to grab his disciples' attention. And by the way, so there's two kinds of millstones. And, and you're thinking, I don't even know what a millstone is. Here's what a millstone is. When you take a grain and you're going to grind it, oftentimes women would use a hand millstone. Sometimes you kind of think of like pestle and mortar, but in, in a bigger version. So people would, would basically put some grain on a rock, and you would take that millstone, and you would move it back and forth. So there was like a hand-sized millstone, and that's how you would grind grain or prepare wheat or flour. That's not the millstone Jesus is talking about. Jesus is specifically talking about the biggest millstone they know of, which is the one that is pushed by a donkey. Have you ever seen kind of the, the settings of an old village where there's this massive circle? 
and they put the grain in the middle, and around that, that, uh, this massive stone, there's an animal walking around. It's tied uh, to kind of a pole here in the middle, and that animal, usually a donkey, grinds that millstone. It's a massive stone. And it's kind of like it's just a circle, and it's, it kind of just goes around. As the donkey walks around, and it grinds the wheat. Jesus is talking about that kind of millstone. And he says, it's better for someone to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the sea than for them to lead one of these little ones away from me. Now, one of our first responses when we hear Jesus talk like that is, why such, it's almost like, why such hatred? Why, how is it possible for, for Jesus, this person that we think about is, this is the one who's supposed to teach us how to love and how to be like God. Why would he speak in such a graphic way? Well, for the disciples, this would have had a very specific impact. It wasn't just imagery. Years before Jesus came onto the scene, but it was a story that every Jew knew, there was a man by the name of Judas, and he was also from Galilee. And he led a revolt against the Romans, and he called people to his revolt. And in many ways, he acted like a messiah. In fact, when uh, we, we are looking at in, in uh, uh, the, the story of um, in, in Acts, right, where uh, they're, they're debating what to do with the early church, specifically, uh, I think, Peter and, and uh, John. And Gamaliel stands up and says, just give it time. Remember, remember Judas? He, had, he started insurrection, and he says it faded away. That Judas was the Judas that I'm talking about today. He was punished by the Romans after trying to incite a resurrection. You know what his punishment was? Millstone around the neck and thrown into the sea. It was a visible way of punishing those who cause insurrection in the Roman Empire to say, never, never, never try to break the, the yoke of Rome. You'll pay with your life. And in fact, it wasn't just for Judas. The, the Romans began to use this as a visible way of punishing. And it was something you don't forget. So Jesus is not just talking in metaphors. This is a story that they all knew. And they knew this was the threat of anyone who would cause a res or insurrection against the Roman Empire. So Jesus takes this metaphor and says, so you know what the Romans do to those who would lead an insurrection. Jesus takes that same powerful metaphor and says, it would be better for you to suffer that same fate than to be held accountable before a holy God for pointing others away from me. That's pretty strong. And maybe you're beginning to grasp how much Jesus valued eternal life. It wasn't that Jesus didn't value life. It's the fact that he valued eternal life and he wanted every single person who had placed their faith in him to receive it. And so he begins to warn us about the danger of causing others to sin. Those who would look to us, those who are younger, those who are our children, those who are impressionable, or those who are weaker in the faith. Have you ever acted in a way 
willingly, knowing that I know I'm not doing the right thing, but right now it's what I want to do, and you included others in that? Have you ever been a part of leading others astray? I know I have. I know I willingly thought, how much fun is it to do this thing and to do it with my friends, all knowing it was wrong? But we did it. We thought it was so funny. We thought we were, we thought we were so hilarious to do these things. Maybe we would think differently if we start to think of Jesus' words about causing others to sin. Because one sin leads to another sin, leads to a lifestyle that leads to rejection of Christ. That's the way sin works. So what should we learn? We should learn the overall impact of your life. Should be to point others to Jesus. In God's eyes, the human judgment of being drowned by a millstone, which is terrible, is to be preferred than eternal judgment for leading others to reject Jesus. You see that comparison that Jesus is clearly trying to make? Jesus is saying, listen, eternal judgment in hell is much more significant consequence than having a millstone hung around and, and you just losing your physical life. Jesus is trying to pull on this very vivid metaphor. My question to you is, if what should we learn is that the overall impact of our life should point others to Jesus? I would just ask you, are there relationships right now in your life where you specifically know that the way you're, you're acting, the words that you're using, are not God-glorifying, but are literally pointing others away from Christ? Do you have any relationships like that with your family or with coworkers? The reality is, as much as we all want peace with others, we often don't live in that. There's some outliers at times, specifically people that we choose not to forgive or we choose just constantly be intentional with. And what I would just invite you to consider is, consider Jesus' warning that the outcome of our relationship should be to point people towards Jesus, not away from him. And hopefully that metaphor lands heavy, because Jesus intended it to land pretty heavy. Let's look at the second thing Jesus wants us to be watchful of, and that is be watchful of our own sin. I won't reread the passage, but it, here's what you saw. You saw that it would be better for you to cut off a hand and enter eternal life than to enter hell with two. You saw that it would be better to cut off a foot and enter eternal life than to enter hell with two. You saw it would be better to rip out an eye and enter eternal life than to enter hell with two. Once again, graphic. Graphic. This is not for children. In a sense that this is this is not the fairy the fairy tales we read, but it is inspired scripture of Jesus talking honestly with his disciples about ways that they they need to change their thinking if they're truly going to follow Jesus and align with the things that he says are good and right and true. So what is the warning in verses 43 to 48? Well, the warning is this. Those who don't fight sin will earn themselves eternity in hell. And I choose those words carefully. Those who don't fight 
sin will earn themselves eternity in hell. Just as we mentioned with the, the uh, graphic illustration of the millstone, Jesus chooses some startling metaphors to help us understand the cost, the high cost of sin, and how it could cause us to miss eternal life. Now, instead of what is the illustration, it's multiple illustrations. So let me just explain. We have a one-handed, one-footed, one-eyed or follower of Jesus entering the kingdom versus a two-handed, two-footed, or two-eyed follower entering hell. We also have a, a vivid uh, description of this thing we call hell. Actually, one of the things we'll discuss, the word hell is not in the text. It's what we call hell. The word here is Gehenna. And we're going to take a look at, at why this is also a metaphor to help people understand this place of eternal judgment. So, first thing we just need to settle about this is, is this literal? Do we really fight sin in this way? Sadly, we have the story of Origen, uh, one of the early church fathers who emasculated himself following this verse because of sexual temptation. This is not at all what the scriptures are talking about. Jesus does not expect us to literally cut off a hand, a foot, or an eye, just like he doesn't expect any of his disciples to hang a millstone around somebody's neck. It's graphic metaphors to grab your attention, to help you understand the seriousness of sin and the high cost of eternal damnation for sin. How do we know that Jesus is not speaking literal? Well, I'll just point you back to Mark 7. We've already preached on this. Mark 7, 20-23 says, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, What comes out of a person is not what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. If you cut off your hand, your feet, you can cut off everything. The sin is in your heart. That's the problem. The root is in your heart. It's just the hands and the feet that take you to the place that your heart wants to go. You know that little song we sang as a kid? Oh, be careful little feet where you go. Or be careful little eyes what you see. Uh, I won't get a singing contract. I'm positive of that. But I hopefully, do you remember that song? I learned it as a kid. We, we sang it. We learned it from when I was yay high because we automatically, they, they are wanting us to know what your eyes see, what your hands do, where your feet go matter. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He's not wanting us to literally take extreme measures and, and mutilate our bodies. He's wanting us instead to kill sin. It's not about mutilating ourselves. It is about mortifying or, uh, or, or dying to sin. The work that you need to do, the surgery that has to be done is on your heart. And so the illustrations are this one-handed, one-footed, one-eyed follower. It should grab our attention. Actually, it's interesting. In a sense, this one-eyed follower, uh, Mark coined his own phrase. He called it the, uh, it's called the goggle-eyed follower. This one-eyed follower of Jesus. It would have grabbed his disciples' attention. Now, the second thing I want to uh, talk to you about is Jesus is going to speak of hell. So if, if that is one metaphor, we have another, another metaphor, and Jesus speaks of hell. He calls it unquenchable fire. Twice he says they're going to be thrown into hell. That idea of being thrown into hell clearly represents, in a sense, judgment. 
Right? We use the same words when we throw somebody into prison. It means because, because they've been convicted of, of committing a crime or the fact that we've been convicted of our sins, we suffer the consequences or the judgment. Right? So when we say we throw somebody into sin, people don't go to jail by themselves with their own volition. We have a court case. They're proven guilty. And then we, we use the terminology in English. We throw them into jail. And Jesus twice is going to be clearly talking about people thrown into hell. And the reason is because left to ourselves, all of us want to earn heaven in a sense. For those who sin, we don't see ourselves as sinful. And so Jesus is saying, listen, your sins have earned you hell. You will be thrown into hell. In verse 38, he adds this phrase, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, we need to talk about hell. One thing I want to point out, if you're a, uh, a very detailed observer, have you noticed when we read verses 42 to 50, verses 44 and 46 were missing? Anybody notice that? 44 and 46 are missing. The reason, and I just want to point this out because I want to give you confidence in the scriptures. Verses 44 and 46 of some... Uh, in, if some versions have those, they're the same exact verse as verse 48 where they repeat this line, where the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. The reason I point that out is because Jesus uh, ends this discussion or uh, uses this illustration of the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. Well, where does that come from? It comes from Isaiah. In Isaiah 66, Isaiah is talking about the final judgment of the Lord and the glory of the Lord. I'll pick up in verses 15 and 16. This is talking about God's judgment at the end of time. It says, Before behold, the Lord will come in fire, and with his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Let me skip to chapter 66 uh, at verse 24. And it says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Jesus quotes this passage. It's pretty graphic. He's getting at the, the judgment, the end judgment. And you see, in a sense, the fire of God, the sword of God, Judging for sin. And you have this picture of, the, of dead bodies heaped up. And these worms eating these dead bodies. And a fire that is, it is lit consuming these bodies. And this is the imagery that Jesus picks up. Now, the reason this is important is because the word that we use, hell, is actually not the word in the text, which I told you. It's the word Gehenna. Now, let me just give you some background so you can understand this passage. Gehenna comes from uh, the, the original Hebrew word, and it means Gehinnom, or the Valley of Hinnom. You might be vaguely familiar with that word, but let me give you the history. The Valley of Hinnom was used as a place to offer child sacrifices to the god Molech. It was a wicked terrible place of cultic, satanic ritual of offering young children to this god, Molech. 
And we see this in Jeremiah uh, chapter 7, chapter 19, where we're told that children are being sacrificed in this valley. Now, Israel has good kings and bad kings. And King Josiah, one of the good and righteous kings, puts a stop to this. And he's going to put a stop to this dreadful practice, and he, he is going to lay waste to this valley. Because it's such an abomination that people would offer their children as a sacrifice, thinking it gave this, this satanic god, Molech, joy that it pleased him. And so the valley of, of Hinnom became, after that, basically a rubbish dump, because it was good for nothing else. People began to take their trash. You know, we, we have sewage systems. We have trash uh, systems here in place. But when uh, you had cities back in the olden days, human excrement and the dead carcasses and all of the food and all of the trash and all of the things had to go somewhere. And all of them made their way to the Valley of Hinnom, what we call now Gehenna. And as you can imagine, a trash dump just doesn't... Uh, first of all, there's, it's, it's, there's sewage, there's human excrement, there's dead carcasses, there's rotting food. And one of the ways to, to uh, uh, help all of that debris go faster was they would light it on fire. And so Gehenna was a place of terrible, terrible smells, death, putrid, rotting, spoiled food. Literally, the, uh, the carcasses of animals that they would have eaten, right? And, and now need to get out of their, their village or their house. And it all ends up in this terrible pit called Gehenna. You have a little bit better picture of what Jesus is talking about when he says that they will go to this place, they'll be thrown into Gehenna. It's this, this burning trash pit, this defiled place of human sacrifice, that has now become the trash dump of all of Jerusalem. Can you smell it? Can you see it? There was no Jew who didn't know what Gehenna was. And Jesus uses or grabs this metaphor to arrest his listeners to help them understand, listen, those who do not fight sin, your eternal destiny is in, the, is in Gehenna. It's in a place like this where the worm is constantly eating the spoiled places. you got maggots everywhere. you got trash on fire. And it never stops. So what should we learn from this graphic imagery? Here's what we learn. Eternal life is so important that we must deal radically with our sins that distract, destroy, and damn us to hell. Eternal life is so important that you should be willing to deal with any sin that would distract, destroy, or damn you to hell. And I don't use those words in, in any way to draw, try to draw attention. But those are not words we typically use. We don't use words like damn and hell. But these are specific words that Jesus is getting at, is that this is the result of sin, to go to a place like Gehenna. The mark of all true disciples is that you would be fighting sin. And there's a great quote by a Puritan that says, If you're not killing your sin, your sin will be killing you. That's truth. It's like cancer. You know, the, and in fact, cancer would probably be one of the best modern day illustrations I could give you about sin. When somebody 
uh, is found to have cancer, what is the first thing that they know they must do? Cancer can't remain. It, it will slowly take over your body. It destroys one cell after another after another, and when it spreads enough, it destroys you. That's cancer. And that is why the first measure is that we try to cut it out if possible, and if we can't, we use radiation to kill it. And radiation literally is killing you. Radiation is killing you because it's more important to try to kill the cancer, which will kill you eventually. And so that is why every hospital will either first try surgery or secondly try radiation. And their hope is that we can kill cancer before it kills you. And for all of us who have known somebody, a loved one who has, has had cancer, then we know what we go through. We know it is, in a sense, hell. It is killing you. And if you understand what we have to do for cancer because it's a disease, then you understand that sin is a disease that is in your heart, that blinds your eyes to sin, that, that begins to harden your heart for God, and that is killing you day by day by day till it finally does its work. And that's what Jesus is warning us. He's like, be killing sin now. Because the end result is if you don't win that battle, it will kill you. That's what we are to learn. Lastly, let me quickly go over this last illustration of watch being unsalty. These last verses are really unique. In fact, these are some of the uh, most interesting verses in all of Mark to try to unpack. Uh, these verses aren't in any other gospel. And so this is kind of a mystery wrapped inside a conundrum. It says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I'm going to flip the formula here. Instead of looking at the warning, I'm going to look at the illustration. The metaphor is about salt. So here's what we know. Salt was unbelievably important in the ancient culture. In fact, it was so important, they had a saying. The world cannot survive without salt. The world cannot survive without salt. That is what all of the ancients knew to be true. Now, why? There's many, many uses of salt, but I can just give you three. First and foremost, you know that we use salt as a flavoring agent. In a way, salt gives taste. Uh, have you ever tried something and it's bland and you immediately say, you're reaching for the salt. I, it needs more salt. It needs more flavor. So we know salt being a flavoring agent. But it was also a preserving agent. So uh, if you've ever had salted meats or cured meats, it's, salt is a preserving agent. It takes something that would otherwise rot and decay and it is able to preserve it. In Jesus' time, salted fish in the markets or salted meats was a way of preserving something that otherwise, if you catch a, a boatload of fish, either you sell everything or you can salt it for later. And then with that salt, you were able, that pre preserving was able to provide sustenance over a long term. In, in a world where they didn't have refrigerators, in a world where they didn't have freezers, in a place where uh, in, in colder climates you can actually bury food in the earth because it serves as a freezer. In, in a place like Jerusalem, it's hot everywhere. There is no preserving food except for salt. 
Salt was life. It gave food. Lastly, salt is a purifying agent. If you think about this, have you ever been swimming in the ocean when you had a cut and it stings a little bit? But one of the best things that you can do when, you, when you're injured is to use a little bit of salt and water. It cleans, it purifies. Long before there was antibiotics, long before there was drugs, there was the simplicity of salt and water to purify and clean wounds, to heal infection. Right? When you have a, a, a sore in your mouth, you gargle with salt. When you're doing a surgery, what do you do if you don't have antiseptics? Well, you clean with salt. It stings, but we also know it cleans. So Jesus is going to draw on all of these illustrations, and he's going to bring his discussion with his disciples about sin to a close. And the warning is this. The illustration is about salt and its many uses. The warning is, don't lose your saltiness. Because salt that is not salty is worthless. Now, in modern days, none of us know salt that is not salty. Because all the salt we have is pure. So, you have no idea of unsalty salt. In Jesus' day, when you got salt from the Dead Sea, uh, that salt had impurities. And if it wasn't treated properly, those impurities would grow, and then the salt would become useless. And now, if you, uh, one of the things I used to love to do, I had gardening as a hobby, and one thing I know about salt, you cannot have salt anywhere near your plants. It will kill the soil. It will kill growing things. Little, the little, uh, uh, when you look to study biology, the little microbes in the soil that, that are all alive and, and teeming with life underneath the soil that gives life to the plant to grow up, if you put salt on the soil, you will kill everything. And so... We, we see that if salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. What do you do with a whole boatload of salt that has gone off because of impurities? They literally had no use for it. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know where to bury it. They didn't know, they didn't know how exactly to dispose of the salt. Probably it goes to the Valley of Gehenna. But it created actually a huge problem. If you don't take care of the salt correctly, it will grow impurities, and if it grows impurities... Uh, the whole batch will be ruined, and it's useless. Okay? Most of us don't have useless salt. All of us have these purified salt uh, that is made in, in either a lab or that has been refined, and so we don't know it. But in Jesus' day, every single one knew, if you don't take care of your salt, if you allow impurities, it will go off or go bad. It will be useless. And this is Jesus' warning. If you be my disciples who are supposed to be salt, a flavoring agent, a preserving agent, a purifying agent in the world. As my disciples, I have placed you. Matthew 5.13 says, you are the salt of the world. He's also going to call them light. So if they lose that saltiness, what of their witness? What of Jesus' purpose for their life? Jesus says, if you're not salty, you can't serve your purpose. So what can we learn I'll unpack just very interesting saying, and then we'll close. Salted with fire. Jesus said, everyone will be salted with fire. We know what it looks like to be salt, to be a preserving, a flavoring, a purifying agent in the world. That's what Jesus wants his disciples to be. What is this salted with fire? Well, as I mentioned, salt is a purifying or preservation. Fire in the scriptures is always used for testing, refining, suffering, or persecution. And what Jesus is saying is, every true disciple's faith will be purified 
and preserved as a result of suffering and persecution that is brought about by their desire to follow Jesus and live for Jesus. Let me say that again. So what can we learn? I'll say it in another simpler way. God's plan is to purify us through trials. That's what salted with fire means. To be salted with fire means that God's plan is to purify you through trials. As I said, salt is a purifying and preserving agent. Fire is always a testing, refining, or suffering, or persecution. You put those two together, and we see that Jesus is talking about God wanting to purify us through trials. I'll give you two verses. Expect purifying trials. This is 2 Timothy 3.12. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First Peter says it a different way. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials. Notice verse 7. So that the testedness, or the, excuse me, the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it was tested by fire, may be found to be resulting in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Of how Peter and Paul see our testing, of how our testing is proving, one, testing is going to be part and parcel of following Christ, but it proves the genuineness of our faith. So God's plan is for you to be salty, and God's plan is for you to be purified through your trial. Let me bring our sermon to a close because I've talked a lot about trying to fight sin. But if I didn't end with the gospel, you'll walk away once again with a dangerous misunderstanding this morning. I want to talk about law versus gospel. I want to close with this. The message today... It's not about trying harder. No matter how much you try, you're, you're, you're not going to earn heaven by fighting sin. It's about trusting. It's not about trying. It's about trusting. It's not about trying harder to eliminate sin. It's about trusting in the Savior who has been given for your sins. If we don't bring Jesus' conversation to after his death and a realization of his grace and his life poured out for us, we haven't done justice to this passage. So what does Jesus want you to do? Well, the mark of everyone who truly follows Jesus is that we fight sin. That's always the mark of every true believer, that we actively fight sin. But it's never the reason for our salvation. The reason for our salvation is because Jesus has died for our sins and offered us salvation. One is relating to God out of law. The other is relating to God out of what he has done for us. It's called grace. And I don't want you to get those confused today. So when Jesus talks about fighting sin, I'm not trying to tell you, do a better job of keeping the law. Do a better job of trying to be good. Be good enough to earn salvation. That's not at all what I mean. What Jesus was saying, for those who identify themselves as followers of him, what he says is, a mark of being a true disciple is that you actively begin to fight sin because of your relationship with me. You don't fight sin in your own power. We fight sin in God's power because, one, he has won the victory over sin by dying on the cross, and two, he's given us the spirit 
now to pursue our new life in Christ. If you are interested to know more about what it looks like, I invite you to come and talk to me. If you've never heard about the grace that God has given to us, Romans 6.23 says this, The wages of sin is death, the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the grace that he gives us to fight the fight against sin. I would love to talk to you about that if you have never heard that before. Let me close in prayer, then we'll close in our song. Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we do embrace the fact that skin, skin, sin is truly the scariest thing because it can separate us from an eternity in heaven with you. God's sin will earn us hell. But because of your grace, you have offered to every sinner salvation through Jesus Christ. It is a free gift that no one can earn, but is made available to everyone who will trust and believe. God, help this truth sink home and deep into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.